On this week's episode of the Horror Podcast, we're talking about the Bechdel Test, Crossman 660s, The Last Can of Peaches, and The Housing Crisis, and Stakeland. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 29 of The Horror Pod Class. My name is Tyler, and by day, I'm a mild-mannered teacher, and by night, I dream of publishing a grocery store-themed horror anthology. I'm going to call it Clean Up on Aisle 5. Maybe I will publish that anthology with my buddy Mike over here, who co-owns our uh, website, Signal Horizon, which is a uh, media giant uh, who covers all things horror and science fiction. On the side, we also host the Horror Pod Class. Hey, Mike, what's going on, man? We're actually, I think, more like um, more like the horror equivalent of Whole Foods and less like Giant Foods, but, you know, whatever. It's fine. It's fine. Um, that, that's fair. Yeah. So what's up, loser teacher? How you doing? I got nothing, man. Still a loser? Yep. Always. Yeah. Always. 15 years in, still a goddamn loser. <laughs> well, hey, man, I had a lot of fun with the last episode. I hope uh, Donnie Jr. doesn't sue us. Or Alex Jones, but um, but I think both of them have enough legal trouble right now. So unless our listeners dime us out, we're going to be okay. They could totally sue me. I have nothing in the bank. Good luck. <laughs> Can you see it? Can you see it? Donnie Jr. On Fox News, it would be Donnie Jr. sues socialist teacher to protect <laughs> your rights to put crosses in your front yard. And then on right. CNN, it would be the exact opposite. Donnie Jr. wants to steal money from a hardworking teacher. Anyways, what are you excited about? What are you reading? What are you watching? What are you excited about before we alienate any more of our audience? (laughs) No problem. Oh, man. This last week was a hoot. Uh, It was a ton of fun. I got to do all kinds of exciting stuff. But uh, let's start with Max uh, Max Booth III's uh, new novel. It's called... uh, carnivorous lunar activities it's out now by uh fangoria press i just started it it's a ton of fun uh it looks i'm not a gigantic werewolf guy so i'm gonna reserve judgment uh but the the first few chapters i would say uh are relatively light it's got a a really comedic element to it which makes it kind of different than anything else uh I also, yesterday, saw as part of the Horror Club of Kansas City, shout out guys, uh, they played uh, American Mary at Screenland Tapcate as part of Women in Horror Month. And admittedly, this uh, was a movie I hadn't seen yet, even though everybody talked about it. Uh, it is Saska. It was directed by the Saska sisters. It was one of their first, uh, movies that they did. And I really, really enjoyed it. I I thought it was pretty deep. It's got some really specific things that it's trying to accomplish and say, and, uh, I think we may do an episode about it before, uh, you know, too long. So I thought it was excellent. And last but not least, I'm rereading Ashes and Entropy to get ready for the Outer Dark Symposium for the Greater Weird, which is going to take place at the end of March. I got my ticket. We are going to be, I guess we can officially announce it, right, on this episode. Uh, Signal Horizon is going to be one of the official sponsors of it. So we are jazzed to to go there and cover it. 
That is awesome. Uh, we were last year we uh, we were part of their Kickstarter. Now this year we're going to be a corporate sponsor. I think it's uh, I think it's super awesome the work that they're doing down there, uh, and I think I think that there's big things in store for Weird Fiction in the future. Um, that is an excellent anthology that you've got there, Ashes and Entropy. Also, you know, Max Booth was the um, was the editor of another anthology that I liked, um, um, Lost Films. Yep. Yeah, I loved that. And that was it was one of my favorites. And I, not on the Stoker shortlist, but boy, I thought it should have been. Mm. So. Yep. Yeah. Anyhow. Well, I, any, not not to not to get too in the weeds in that. If I remember correctly. Uh, Lost Highways is on there, but not Lost Films, right? That is correct. Lost Highways was very good. There was there was a lot of very good stuff in there. I just thought that, uh, boy, I thought I thought Lost Films was like next level stuff. So yeah, well, and Lost Highways. Shout out to uh, friend of the podcast, Orrin Gray, who made the table of contents for this year's best horror of the year, edited by Alan Datlow. So way to go, Orrin. Yeah, and absolutely stellar table of contents on that one. Uh, Ellen Datlow obviously has has her pulse on the type of horror that we like. For sure. For sure. All right, man. Is that anything anything else interesting this this week? No, man. What have you been up to? Um, I have not yet watched the last episode of True Detective. Have you seen it? Me yet? either. Okay. I haven't seen it yet. Do not yeah. say anything. Don't say anything. Been, I haven't seen it. I can't say anything oh, about it because I don't. I don't know. I mean, there's been there's been some talk out there from some of the writer friends that uh, some of them we've even had on this podcast that didn't didn't say great things about it. But oh, boo, I you know I don't know. Maybe I, I don't know. I haven't seen it. I can't decide for myself. Um, but man, I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna watch it here in the next couple days, and I hope they're wrong. I hope they're wrong. Um, last week I read, uh, Mr. Suicide by Nicole Cushing. Um, uh, there was recommended to me by, um, Richard Gerlach. He's, uh, one of the reviewers at Signal Horizon. It, uh, it won a Stoker a couple years back and, uh, just a very Legatian, Legati-esque, whatever you want to call it. Definitely in the vein of Thomas Legati, but <laughs> getting getting it in early today. Yeah, yeah, get, yeah getting okay. it in early. Um, very extremely transgressive. Um, very very different. Uh, I mean, it had me like locked in from like page two, right? What's what's the hook? All the way to the end, man. It is so weird. I don't even know if I can give you the hook. Um, it is. A, a young kid who does not fit in very well, and Mr. Suicide talks to him and tries to get him to commit suicide. Then the whole book changes gears and courses and goes off the freaking deep end. It is cool. it is wild. Again, all right. Again, extremely transgressive, um, but one that I that I I enjoyed. Believe it or not, so. Um, and yeah, yeah, won a uh, won a Stoker a couple years back, and Nicole Cushing um, has has a new book that's going to be coming out uh, from um, Grim Scribe Press, the guys uh, the the press owned by John Paget, who does a Vestarian, a literary journal. Cool. Yeah, yeah. So they they just did a um, they just had an announcement of uh, of that. It's going to be called the Half Freaks. And I think it's due. Oh, I dig it. Yeah, I think I think it's due out uh, twenty twenty, 
maybe or later this year. Not not hundred percent sure, but yeah, on my radar. Awesome, on my radar. So hey man, I love it. We what have what have we got for uh, dark corners of the web this week? Hold on, you got to cut in the intro. Oh, you're right. We got to do the intro. Right. Come on, Phil. <laughs> dark, 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 dark corners, corners of the web. He had no idea by doing that he was going to be on this episode no. for perpetuity. For perpetuity, for perpetuity, yep. All right. All right, so today's Dark Corners of the Web. This is a true story. This is how the Unsel's party, okay? My uh, 12-year-old, uh, sometimes we do funny video night, okay, where we let him pick, like, stupid shit that happens to kids, right? And we'll watch YouTube and just watch funny videos epic fails or whatever he's into okay the the modern equivalent of um america's funniest home videos oh yeah absolutely and and i am relatively certain i laugh so hard that like i almost cried just like my dad did for america's funniest videos you know like it just is what it is yeah so anyways uh we're like okay jack you know you can you can do your you know you can you can have control of the tv and he said well okay but i don't want to watch funny videos i want to watch this thing that I've been been watching on my own. And we're like, okay, <laughs> it's it's always like a, you know, it, it's always a surprise, and you never know what you're gonna get. So I'm like, all right, buddy. And he started to watch, and maybe this is a proud or not so proud parent moment. He started to watch a channel called Dead Meat on YouTube. Wow, okay? sounds age appropriate <laughs> yeah age appropriate yeah. dark right i'm like oh no right i'm a failure uh but he specifically was watching a type of movie called kill count okay okay and the guys on kill count will give a cliff notes version of a horror movie both old and new uh both kind of popular but also you know, uh, some smaller named ones, right? Okay. And those that have developed a cult following, you know, whatever. They they will give a Cliff Notes version of what happens, coupled with some clips from the movie and some, you know, that YouTube humor. Mm-hmm. And then at the end, they will give an uh, they give they give a count of who all gets killed in it. Okay. But it was absolutely fascinating to me because, like, back in the day in my English class. Who's got time to read As I Lay Dying? Uh, you can't see me because it's an audio podcast, but my hand would be raised. So I read the Cliff Notes version, and I was better for it. So I'm never going to be able to watch every horror movie I would like to. And I realized I can get a good general idea of some of that stuff that I missed by watching Kill Count. It's all free, and it's all high production value and really great. So check out the Dead Meat YouTube channel. That's really cool. Why didn't we not think of that? Because we are not that smart. Oh, darn it. Darn it. Because we're just loser teachers. <laughs> right. Man. Exactly. All right. So but, so what um, – speaking of loser teachers, man, what um, what aspect of socialism are we going to be talking about today? Socialism yes. 102. Yes. Socialism <laughs> 102. Uh, takes us into the uh, hyper-developed world of Joseph Stalin and, no, um, Socialism 101-B today uh, will have us covering the essential question, what is fiscal horror and what is its relationship to stake land? Excellent, excellent. Had you seen this movie before before you rewatched it? 
or that, watched it the first time. <laughs> yeah, whatever. Yeah. Uh, I no, I had, I had never seen it. it wasn't well, on my radar. I I hadn't read anything about it. I was, I don't know. I was unaware. So hmm. it was all brand new to me. Well, when but when when the, you had though, right? Yeah. When this first came out, I was like super stoked about it because I remember there being some like webisodes, a webisode yeah. for you those who are maybe younger that don't they don't remember this time is when they would put a little teaser of content out on the web they would call it a webisode i don't think they really do that anymore because that's not really a thing because it's just more content out there on the web now i don't think they call it webisode anymore yeah it's just an actual episode yeah it's just (laughs) an an episode that's free on youtube or whatever um but (laughs) just like six to ten minute shorts that were about the Stakeland universe. I don't remember when any of them were. I remember, though, that one of them was very captivating, and I had seen it, and I got super worked up about wanting to see this movie, and then um, it became it was very difficult to find um, because it was originally v- a very small release in the States. It mm-hmm. went to uh, one, of the, one of the film circuits. It got picked up by, I think, IFC Midnight. I had trouble getting a hold of IFC Midnight. I had to wait, like, I think, like, a whole year and a half before I finally got to got to see it on some sort of streaming service or something, or two years or something like that. Three years, I don't know. But eventually I saw it, and uh, that was that. Uh, and then I rewatched it recently. But I thought I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah, so a lot of people's first experience with this movie was at TIFF, uh, the Toronto International Film Festival, where it won the, like midnight fan contest or whatever they called that. Ah, uh, okay. So I, it vaguely, I remember it doing that. And I remember being vaguely intrigued by it. And then it was like, it's a vampire movie. And I was like, all right, vampires really aren't my thing. So I wasn't like super invested in it. And mm-hmm. none of the shit that I had read at the time was like, it's really a deeper movie than just a vampire flick, you know, otherwise I would have been all about it. Yeah. So I was, I was excited to explore this thing that I think I just, I missed. I just, it was just a big whiff for me and I didn't, didn't cover it. Hmm. We should probably give for those of you that haven't seen it yet, a brief, a real brief summary of the movie again, this time by uh, the internet movie database, which we know fucks all kinds of summaries up, but we're going to use it anyways. Yeah. Can I read it this time? Yeah, do okay. it. I'm, I'm going to use the voice of the guy that does the, the trailers. Oh, okay. In a world of vampires, an expert vampire hunter and his young protege travel toward sanctuary. Wah, wah. <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> all right hey you could you can pay us to do that uh just hit us up at uh tyler or mike at signal horizon That'd yeah be great mm-hmm. all right so let's ring the spoiler bell because we're gonna spoil the crap out of this movie it's a pretty good movie um where can they find it at uh, i think it's available for free on uh amazon prime if you are a prime member you're right it is that's where i watched it all right, man, Sweet. let's ring that bell. Okay, Mike, did you did you like it? You know, you always ask me this, right? You're the one that usually picks the movies, and then you're like, uh, hey, man, did you like it? All right, so, kinda. All right, here's the thing, is that I think that there's a couple, I think there's many good things that this movie does. I just think that every time it does something good, 
it totally misses on at least two other things, right? It just drops the ball twice. It's like that quarterback that can throw a touchdown and then right after that just throw an interception and then get the ball back and then throw another interception. And you're like, man, come on. Look at you throwing around those sports analogies. I'm impressed. I'm 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 a big I'm a big fan of the American sports ball. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, man. All right. So, what do you think are big misses? All right. Let's uh, let's start bad and then build good. Okay. Well, we're just going to start right at the very beginning. The very first scene with the kid and his uh, family when they get killed is such a weird scene when you watch it again. It is so weird because it is like the Hollywood stereotype of what poor people are like. Okay? Yeah. And, okay. Not, and not just poor people, like poor, like generic poor people now. I'm talking about poor people like from the Great Depression. Look the way the dad looks and he's wearing these weird suspenders. They're listening to a radio that is like 100 years old. Yeah. It's a 100-year-old weird portable radio that is in perfect condition. These people are either incredibly poor or it's like some kind of weird hipsters. Like I can't tell which. And he doesn't have a handlebar mustache that has like a mountain of wax in it. So, mm. you know, he's not a hipster. Okay. So he's not a hipster. So they're poor. Yeah. And I, it, it's, it's in like a dumpy rundown barn. I mean, it's just, it's just a weird scene and it's, it's weird. And, and then it just doesn't seem to seem to fit. Um, I I think I think that's fair. And then and then there's 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 many more. I mean I mean we're we'll get know, to them. We'll, I'm sure. we'll get we'll get to them. We'll get to them. Um, I think I think I, but I think I think my my biggest um, my biggest personal kind of I wouldn't call it a beef, but I think that the I think the thing that this movie misses on the most is that it tries to do some new and interesting things, and I'm sure we're going to get to that. But then it also falls into this trap that movies and, and narratives in general do a lot, which is that it uses sexual violence for no other reason than to uh, make male characters either good guys or bad guys. Oh, yeah. And... and, and it- and that is what really struck me as a total miss. I, I think that is uh, a perfectly valid criticism. I, there is uh, a ton of, I don't think actual sexual violence, but implied sexual violence there is a buttload of, right? And it's just the surrogate way of, of describing these guys are good and these guys are bad, right? And, and that's, that's all it does. There's right. no other discussion. There's no other reason. There's no other anything. Um, yeah. And and even even like the character of sister, I think is probably uh, played by um, Kelly McGillis is probably the uh, is probably the most uh, I guess unformed female character I've ever seen in a movie. Probably right. The the really the only like the. Like, like after they rescue her or whatever, her first thing is like, is like, oh my gosh, you know, God will judge you for having killed those guys. It's like, it's like, like what? Like, really? Like, she's supposed yeah. to, she's supposed to be a, um, a nun. All right. I would really like to know, like the nun's point of view as to what her faith is like after there's vampires. 
I think that would be like super interesting, but we never get that. I, I think that's totally fair. And using, you know, th- this movie fails the Bichtel test, right? Like, <laughs> yes. I don't think that there yes. are ever, there is a moment in this film where two women are talking in, in any context, right? And, <laughs> I think you're and, right, yeah. Uh, Sister is this one-dimensional character that is, like, supposed to to, to remind them of, of some antiquated systems of humanity. And then the only other female character that has, like, any measurable number of lines is Belle, uh, who's played uh, by Danielle Harris of Michael Myers fame, which is pretty cool. But, like, she's just there basically as an anchor, you know, as a way to slow these dudes down, you know? And and, uh, she has no uh, development. She has no dynamicism. She's, like, she's just this thing, right? And then at the end of the movie, when she... Uh, dies like I've I felt like it should have been a much bigger deal than it was but it's like I blinked and they're like oh yeah we put her out of her misery yeah whatever on to the next one <laughs> you know it's like what the fuck man? exactly exactly yeah so it it's portrayal of women is is really not great but I think it it sacrifices that because it's probably trying to preach uh, a larger economic message, maybe? I think you're right. And I think that's what we're supposed to really be talking about. But I just couldn't let that go. You know? I, I, that's fair. And I, I, so. Because, I think that's a fair criticism. Because, because I think that there are some really great things about this movie. It's just, there were a bunch of bad things, too. You know? Yeah. So, but then again, it was a small budget movie. Um I think they do uh, a pretty good job with the small budget. We'll get to we'll get to that later. Let's talk about the economic stuff. That's what everybody showed up for. Okay, so the first thing I want to talk about, at least in the context of the theory surrounding the movie, I first saw a, an article called "We're All Rats Now: Mulberry Street and the Modern Economic Horror Cycle." I know nothing about the movie Mul- uh, Mulberry Street. I'm gonna watch it. I think it sounds absolutely interesting. So this article showed up in the Journal of Popular Film and Television, and it's by Craig Ian Mann. And it really gets to the heart of, you know, what what make this writer-director duo, the guys responsible for Stakeland and the movie uh, Mulberry Street, are trying to get to when it comes to uh, what he coins as fiscal horror. Did you read that article? Yeah, I read it. I thought it was a. I thought it was a fantastic article. What, what did what what really struck out stuck out to you about um, about we're all rats now? Yeah, I think what man does a really good job of uh, is isolating, and I think you did a great job at the beginning here of talking about how this feels like a really like Hollywood version of the way cons- the conservative Midwest is. You know, Mm. is this like big, poor, right? Above all poor bastion of Christian fundamentalism. Right. And that it is inherently tied that that Christian fundamentalism is inherently tied into the the kind of uh, fiscal shape of that particular area of the country. And I think Stakeland is really going for that message, right? In in fact, I think at some point in time, Mister, who's the main guy in the movie, 
says uh, to his new ward, we avoid all of the cities, you know, because that's where all the trouble is or, or something along those lines. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the cities are completely um, they're just completely written off. Right. I, I think I think it's something about, oh, yeah, everybody tried to stay inside the cities and then the disease got in and then it and then they all died. Right. And then we just stay away from them. And it's that um, really interesting that it's like the cities are um, it's like not only have they been abandoned by the people, they've also abandoned these people that are outside the cities, too. Right. Um, I, I think I think it's it's fascinating how throughout history and throughout time. Um, our ideas of like rural versus urban and, and what those things mean um, kind of change. Um, you know, in particularly in like World War II, if you were anywhere in Europe, um, Britain or Germany or France or whatever, um, the cities were very dangerous places, right? They're being like bombed out all the time. Um, the the um, the rural areas, the farms and everything, that's where the safety was. Uh, people sent their kids there, you know, to live. Um, and, and economically, I mean, if it's hard to find food and you're living on a farm, you're like growing food, right? Um, but, it, but here, we, we, we don't, but we don't have that idea anymore, right? The rural areas are just uh, like bombed out, yeah, like, like wastelands, right? And, yep. and I think that the most... The most telling thing that they do in this movie, um, I think one of the things they do the best of in this movie is whenever they go around to one of the like the lockdown towns, right? I think that's what they actually call them, right? The lockdown towns, yeah. um, something like that. Yeah, is that you would expect in a post-apocalyptic movie those places to be like very regimented. Very, everybody's working, you know, everybody's like growing food or like putting up solar panels or like carrying a gun and like looking out for the, looking out for the vampires or whatever. Here, everybody's just kind of sitting around, you know, they're just kind of like lost. They're kind of shell-shocked. Um, they're frankly, you know, surprised that Mr. and uh, and the kid go out and hunt these, these things. They're kind of, it's like an apathy. Right. And I think that that's really I think that's really amazing. The other amazing scene, I think, is with the doctor when um, they're talking to the doctor and the doctor is injured. I think that's a great. Yeah. uh, I I mean, not injured in the scene, but she's she has a cast on her arm. I mean, that's like a perfect like metaphor right there. So, yeah. Well, and you remember when they get into that, I think it's the first lockdown town, Uh, you know, like what he pulls out to like prove their bona fides, you know, oh, is the teeth. That's right? yeah. That's one of my favorite scenes. Cause they're like, who the fuck is this asshole? Right. And like they're, they're fixing to like, you know, uh, drop the hammer down. And then he gives them the sack full of vampire teeth. And they're like, Oh shit. This guy's, this guy's for real, you know? Yeah. And it becomes this, this almost currency that proves their worth. And it, it reminded me of both the way it is in, in real life, right? Because we come from the Midwest and we deal enough with smaller towns. Uh, but also certainly the Hollywood version. In small towns, they're very weary of somebody that comes in from a larger city or whatever that doesn't seem to be authentic. You know, mm. that doesn't doesn't have any way to prove that they belong or can contribute or, you know, are not worthy of their suspicion, right? 
And so he's able to circumvent that by, by you know, like by proving uh, uh, yeah, he has a talent and ability that could prove uh, important down the road. Yeah. Yeah. Although the scene that you really liked uh, was also one of the scenes that I kind of had a little bit of trouble with because the the acting by and large from our main cast is, is, is I'd say, you know, good to very good. Um, the acting from our uh, supporting cast and our extras yeah. is generally poor, I'd say. I, I think it's not very good in that scene. And it's also a weird scene because they like roll up and like there's a train that they move out of the way, which yeah. the, which is like, dude, do you, do you know how many gallons of diesel fuel it takes to start up one of them trains? Yeah. I mean, come on. And there's all these Harleys like sitting out there. Those were guys that were like in the area. They put out the call. They're like, hey, do you want your Harley to be in a movie? And they all showed up with their Harleys. They are like pristine. They're sparkling. <laughs> let's let's just be fair. You have been fighting on Facebook with a bunch of guys that own Harleys, and you're taking it out on this poor group of extras that I think are, are working really hard. I think they're great people. They're great. There's great people on both sides. I just think <laughs> that yeah. Uh, I think that's that's probably generally fair. Yeah. Before we get too far off the beaten path, one of the things uh, that I think we do a really great uh, job of in that article that we mentioned above is looking at other movies that they say fit within the definition of fiscal horror. So let me just give you a few. We already talked about Mulberry street, which I have not seen uh, the innkeepers, which is by Ty West. Um, I have you seen that? I just saw it the other day and I absolutely loved it. I have not. No, I, I, I rarely watch uh, horror movies unless I've been directed to by you. All right. Well, go watch it because it's so freaking good. Yeah, it uh, it was a movie mentioned actually by uh, Orrin Gray when he was on um, with his Candyman episode a while ago. And I finally got around to watching it. It's directed by Ty West. It's great. All right. I, I roger that, sir. I will watch it. OK, uh, you're next which is a fantastic film directed by um, a director from Lawrence, Kansas. So hmm. another one you got to check out. And I think what is great about that is the fiscal stuff is really underplayed. You know, it's mostly just like a home invasion film, but Simon Barrett, the, uh, the writer of that just does a great job of, and I should say the, the writer is from Lawrence, Kansas, not the director, uh, does a great job of capturing the nuance of fiscal horror without beating you over the head with it, which is what I think kind of stake land does cheap thrills, which is a hoot, uh, dark as shit, but really good. Another movie by Ty West called house of the devil. And then a movie I've not seen, but looks interesting called starry eyes. Wow. Very, very cool. Um, one of the, uh, one of the things I think bears mentioning is, uh, while I was doing a little bit of research for this, there's, there's another aspect of horror of financial of economics and horror that I think is really interesting. And I'll put a, uh, put a link to it in, in the show notes. It's, um, from, it's, uh, by a guy named D uh, Darren Mooney. And, uh, he basically argues that when the economy is struggling, horror movies do well, right? They're cheaper to produce. People want kind of a, kind of 
you know, they, they want what they've got, what, what a horror movie's got. Um, and even if it's not about specifically about the subject matter of horror, uh, of fiscal horror, horror movies in general do well. And, uh, and you can think about the universal kind of horrors of the, um, of the depression. Um, he kind of points at some stuff in the seventies. Um, so all, all kind of, all kind of interesting stuff. Okay. So I'm game for that, but we have uh, like by almost every measure, we have seen a, a renaissance of horror movies the last three or four or five years. Right. Mm-hmm. Other than, you know, some pretty significant data about, um, income disparity by other, you know, casual markers of economic, uh, you know, you know, strong economic times. Like we're, we're in pretty strong economic ties at times. So what do you think economically makes horror so popular right now? I would say that if you wanted to, uh, cause Darren Mooney wrote this back in 2012. So that was at the tail end yeah. of the financial crisis, kind of the the, yep. reco- the recovery period. Um, if you look at it now and why it's uh, why horrors kind of continued, my argument would probably be that the actual economic indicators mean much less than people's um, perception of the economy or yeah. how well they're doing. Um, you can have an economy that's doing very, very well, but as we've seen, there's there's been this ted, st- uh, steady erosion of um, of like the savings rate of like how many like man, it's some of the stuff is like when they do um, when they do studies of like how many people and they they pick this number they pick this number of three thousand dollars because three thousand dollars is like if your car's engine or transmission blows up and you need it to get to work. Like, can you come up with $3,000 in two weeks time, right? And you can use savings, you can use credit cards, you can use your, you can use your checking account, you can call, you call your friends, you can call your family, you could take out a loan, like, could you come up with $3,000? And the amount of people that cannot is staggering. Um, So, so what that shows is that there's people that are in um, economic jeopardy all the time. And, uh, you know, I, I think I think that despite the numbers looking really good, I think that there's probably a growing number of people that are in kind of that boat. So, yeah. Well, and, and to tie this back into horror, I think you're 100 percent right, because that first article that we talked about talked about the financial crisis uh, and its connection to the housing crisis. Right. Because we had so many people losing their houses and the resurgence of haunted uh, house movies, right? Mm, yeah. Because people were actually scared of their house, you know, of their mortgage and, you know, of the place in which they live. And, and I would take that to the next level. And I would say we have seen movies that are made that are incredibly intimate, right? That uh, are about families falling apart. I'm looking at you, Hereditary. Uh, or are about power imbalances that regardless of the economic situation that both may be in are still representative of huge power disparities. I'm looking at you, Get Out, right? Uh, both both sets of families, right? Both of the main characters in that movie have money, but they still have massive 
social and political imbalances that I think exist regardless of whatever the, you know, main political markers that we may have. I mean, Chris in Get Out, I think, has plenty of money. He's got a badass apartment in New York, you know, but nonetheless doesn't have as much power as the, you know, the family that uh, he goes to meet. Mm hmm. Yeah, no, totally, totally. Um, so do you think do you think this movie Stakeland? I, I, I mean, when I watched it, I was like, is this movie specifically about the 2008 financial crisis and then the housing crisis? Like, is it specifically about that? Um, and uh, so I did a little bit of research and I found on uh, Wall Street Journal, they did a um, really short article about tracing Stakeland from inspiration to release. And uh, it turns out that uh, principal, principal filming was actually started in, I think, late 2009. So the script was already written. A lot of the webisodes were already done. But yet when they were actually filming, it was after the financial crisis. I thought that was pretty interesting. And I wonder, yeah. I wonder how much of that, how much of that thought kind of, kind of changed things because there's, there's really this like, there's this part where they actually say, well, and kind of another problem with the movie. There's a lot of like narration. Did you notice that? Yeah. Yeah. And it's like a little bit is okay, but like, man, there's just a lot of narration. But one of the things that they narrate is that, um, everything it got sketchy right but then once washington dc fell and the president was 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 killed by a vampire it was all done right and it just kind of like watching that now and thinking about the financial crisis it's just like man it's like things got sketchy and then dc turned their back on us and then we were done that's what that's the feeling that i got I'm, I'm, I don't, I, I think that's probably a pretty fair interpretation of that. And so I, it either points to, I think a really interesting thing the movie is doing or, or one of its, its big problems is whether or not it is giving a fair representation of how, of, of how the financial crisis hit everyday Americans and how the economic recovery has treated them as well. And I think it's fair to, to go back and, and reflect back on that, you mm -hmm. know, but I, you know, I think a ton of people felt like they, you know, there was this massive bailout of the banks and uh, not really a bailout of, you know, folks getting eaten by vampires in Kansas. Exactly. Or, or, yeah. Juggalo vampires. That first vampire looks totally like a juggalo. Yeah. All right. Can maybe this would be a good moment. I don't have an article or anything for this. I don't love the weird classifications of vampires in this movie. Right. I like rules. If you're going to have a bad thing, let it have <laughs> rules, you know, but it's like, oh, we have these vampires that are bad, relatively difficult to kill. But, you know, they're relatively bad. And then you have the berserker vampires. Right that we learn are like the oldest and the most powerful or what the fuck ever. Yeah. And then at the very end, right, we get Jebediah who's like a living, breathing, thinking vampire. And it's like, come on, man. I feel like you're moving the goalposts here. Okay. Like give us a bad guy and let us figure out how to beat him. I don't, I don't know. Maybe that's the zombie guy in me that just likes, you know, like the, the strategy of trying to figure it out. But I, I did not love that because I felt like they were constantly, 
every time we would solve this equation, they'd have a different one for us. I kind of, I kind of agree. I kind of agree. And this feels like I know they're vampires. This feels a little bit more like a, like a zombie movie. Yeah, I mean, yeah. with all of the analysis about society falling apart, all of the analysis about shit going down in the cities and trying to stay out in the rural parts, mm-hmm. like there are going to be really clear comparisons to make. Yeah. Uh, the the only thing that I will tell you that I really liked about that aesthetic, I mean, I think the whole the whole aesthetic of the film is really interesting, but you know where they find the bus at the end? Yeah. I know it reminded you of your dad's friend, but outside <laughs> of that... Uh, <laughs> It reminded me of, um, did you ever see Into the Wild? Into the Wild, yeah, of course, yeah. Right, I was like, holy shit, this is uh, Vandertramp, right? Mm -hmm. I think that's what he called himself. But I was like, oh my gosh, this is going to be this uh, hidey hole that they can hide out in. It also reminded me of when they find the bunker in The Road. In The Road, And I think there are a lot of great parallels between this film and The Road, too. Yeah, I think... I, it bear, I think it bears mentioning that from a, a narrative kind of storyteller type of point of view, um, uh, Cormac McCarthy is really, really good. Oh, and w- one of the best. One of the things that he does is he does in the space of maybe three sentences, totally sums up like the whole religious weird fervor stuff that happens after whatever the event is. And he's just like, yeah, we were hiding out and the cults up the river started sending barges down with people on them on fire because they thought that that would bring God back. And that's it. That's all he has to say. And you provide the rest. Yeah. You provide the, but in stake land, you're given everything and you don't provide anything. And, it, right. and maybe that maybe the particularly the religious kind of overtones get a little bit maybe heavy handed. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. No, I agree with you. I, there's very little of that in the road, which is what makes it feel so desolate. Not that I want religion in there, but there's like <laughs> like it's just it's bad for everybody. <laughs> yeah. You know, like yeah. uh, it, nobody it, we have transcended beyond that moment you know the even even the the crazy religious folks are like nah we're all fucked we're, we're all <laughs> you done. know we're all done. so this movie has it it, it uh, stakeland does have some very i don't know kind of kind of poignant and kind of heartbreaking scenes that you see of like people that have killed themselves or people that have been hung or like that kind of stuff uh that's not really commented on a whole lot. I it, it's got some it's got some really good ones like that, but in general, especially when they get to the towns, I kind of get this little bit like cozy. They call it it's called a cozy catastrophe, right? It's just like these places don't really seem that well defended. It, the people seem kind of not really engaged with what's going on. I don't know. It just kind of, it's, it's a weird, you want to know what it felt like to me. Okay. Okay. I'm not a huge video game guy, but particularly the, the scene at the end of the film where we get introduced to the, uh, next female character who will probably die. Mm -hmm. It felt like fallout, you know, like, uh, Oh, I've met this new person who, 
uh, just happens to be here, despite the fact that she is the only one still in this diner and she's still serving people. And, and I, I, it, it did not feel remotely developed. It felt like just a thing. And I, and I feel bad first off, cause I really did enjoy this film and I feel like we have spent a great deal of time talking shit on it, but it, but it's a good, it's a, it's really, I think not a bad movie. So that, let me just say Jim Mickle and Nick, uh, uh, Demichi, I think is how you say his name, yeah. did a fantastic job. So, uh, <laughs> please don't take our criticism, um, you know, we're we're picking nits here, probably. Yeah, I don't know if we're picking nits. Um, there's there's some great stuff in it. Um, but I think if you're a filmmaker, you're a storyteller, this is a good one to watch because they do a lot of things right and they do a lot of things wrong, and you can learn from both. I, I agree. Yeah. I think that's a fair fair evaluation. Mm-hmm. Hey, the practical effects were good, right? Oh it, yeah, I think the practical effects are awesome. I think I think I think we. I think we were sharing back and forth some articles. I think one of them talks about kind of the inspiration for a lot of that was like Evil Dead, Arm, uh, Army of mm-hmm. Darkness type types of. You can really tell it. It's like when, especially when he runs the zombie over, and then she's like climbing on the car and that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, yeah, and you're thick in the weeds. Uh, real quick, any conversation of the road, I. There is a scene in the road where they find uh, a bunker where there is hope and joy, and it proves how genius uh, Cormac McCarthy is that we get this like three pages of just utter and complete like ecstasy and joy mm-hmm. and and comfort and normalcy. And I thought that they were going to do that with the bus in Stakeland, but we'd like we don't even get that. Right. So it turns into this big, just downer of a fucking movie, <laughs> you know, like yeah. we, we don't even get this brief respite from how awful this uh, situation is. And I and that's why I, I when you and I were very first kind of laying down the groundwork for uh, today's episode, I was like, I think this movie is just bleak. It's really freaking bleak. Yeah, but. They could have just stayed in one of those towns, right? I mean, both of them are, you know, they're vampire fighters. Everybody else in this world kind of seems to be kind of kind of not interested in, in, in confronting vampires head on. They could have just, like, hung out at one of these towns. It didn't seem too terribly bad. You know, I don't know. I don't know. But you're right. You're right. The path that they set themselves on is incredibly bleak. Yeah. The, the And the thing that I think the road really got right was, like, Man, when you're eating a can of peaches after the end of the world, that's one less can of peaches there's ever going to be in the world. You know, yeah. there's never going to be another can of motherfucking peaches. In this whole movie, Mister's like smoking cigarettes, but there's never like the idea of like, dude, you know, nobody's ever going to make another pack of Marlboros again, right? Yeah. Nobody's ever going to, you know, make another can of peaches. Nobody's, you know, there's all these things that are are never going to happen again, and. I don't know. I also did not like the whole idea of like we're going to Eden. Like there's this Eden place. It felt so much like we're going to California because there's jobs out there, you know, like <laughs> grapes of wrath, you know. It's like, ah, come on. So to be fair, I have not seen the sequel to this, but the sequel has as much praise, if not more so, than this one has. So I will I will make a gigantic caveat to all of this criticism by saying like 
Uh, I don't know. Maybe some of this shit is addressed in the sequel, and I'm just dumb and haven't seen them yet. I don't know. Uh, yeah. Now, the sequel is called The Stakelander, which... Is it? That's what, that's what it says on... Yeah. A revitalized brotherhood sacks New Eden, forcing Martin out of the Badlands out into the Badlands on his own with only the distant memory of his mentor to guide him along the way. Okie dokie. Yeah. So it gets bleaker, right? Great. Oh, and there's a stake land three too. Yeah. I would, uh, I, I remember when the, when the sequel came out and I was like, with a name like that, I don't think I'm going to be seeing it. <laughs> yeah. I think that's fair. Oh shit. Hey, um, Somebody else shares your general disdain for this film. Oh, really? Yeah. I didn't, I didn't look. I didn't. I didn't really hate it that much. <laughs> like I'm. I'm willing to give it so. Too many, late. You I'm, agree with anonymous I'm Amazon to give user? It so much. So many passes. It's just you got to call out some stuff. Sorry. Okay, anonymous Amazon dude, what you got? I think it's you, or is it me? I'll read it this time. Yeah, I'll totally read it this time. Okay, all right. Here's my Amazon review. No, anonymous Amazon anonymous Amazon customer says, "I love post-apocalyptic movies. I am Legend, Zombieland, The Road, Book of Eli, but I hate low-budget, low-talent, unrealistic movies, no matter what the genre." First off. Two of those four are, are pretty decent movies. The other two, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Uh. Once you have seen the first action scene of this film, you will have seen them all. After, probably fair. <laughs> after the first characters, I think I thought the action scenes were pretty. I thought the first one was probably the Juggalo thing kind of had me, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I think I thought the other ones were okay. Also. Um, After the first character is introduced, there is little to no more character development of anyone else. I have no clue how he got gas for the car. I have no clue how they made, got or made the wooden spikes or any of their weapons. First off, they got gassed by other cars, right? They show that. They show that in the movie. Yeah. Right. Uh, You can make a spike. I feel like, let me tell you, I'm not good with my hands. I feel like (laughs) I could do that. You don't need to have a scene showing me doing that. I think I think if you were playing Fallout, the carpentry skill to make wooden spikes would be level zero. Right. Right. Agreed. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I have no clue why Mister Stupid Name was <laughs> was always so serious and angry. I think he should have had a run-in with the Joker. Why so serious? That's bad <laughs> like, joke. It's it's the goddamn vampire apocalypse. I, I think he. He has justification to be rude, yeah. but go ahead. I have no clue what clue why Mister had to find a prostitute in every town they stopped by. A no. fair criticism. This movie does not handle women well. Yeah, I have no clue why Mister had weed on his person. On his person, like this guy's a like must be a lawyer, <laughs> unless that was what he was smoking throughout the movie. It wasn't. Yeah, it wasn't. I have no clue why they had to dog Christian some. Oh, this is. Oh, <laughs> we you found got me. Him. You got me. You got me, man. You got me. All right. Yeah, this is why the guy didn't like this movie. I have no clue why they used BB guns. Crossman's. Oh, my gosh. Crossman's 660s was the first one I recognized as props. Um, 
Okay. <laughs> yes. <laughs> this is your guy, buddy. Yes. Your yes. guy. Yeah, they, they're dogging Christians. And by the way, I'm a BB gun aficionado. <laughs> If you have seen Zombieland or Book of Eli, you have seen this movie, but with much better directing and acting. This First film... off, Mr. Was Not Blind. All right. You know what? You have not seen the sequel. so That's might... true. <laughs> Anyways, uh, this film would be perfect at home being shown on the Sci-Fi Channel along with the rest of their low-budget thrillers. But it does not stand a chance when compared with the above-mentioned movies of late. If you must watch it, I would recommend renting. Huh. So let's just uh, put things into perspective for a moment, okay? Why did they have to dog Christian so much? (laughs) Right? Jebediah wasn't that bad a guy. Get the hell out of here. I mean, it's not like they dropped vampires from helicopters into a peaceful midnight party. I mean, come on. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, wait. Oh, wait. Yeah. Never mind. Shit. Um, you know, on that subject, um, I was recently listening to, um, I think it was the Daily Podcast, the New York Times Daily Podcast, um, which is a great podcast. It's only Definitely. like 20 minutes yeah. long. I think everybody ought to listen to it on the way to work. It's a great way to get your get your news. It's a great way to get your news that's not Facebook. Um, so uh, they were talking about uh, some of the foreign fighters, particularly um, uh, um American women that had left to go live with ISIS. They became yep. they called the ISIS brides, right? And one of the things that I thought was fascinating about the article or about the about the podcast is just very briefly they're like, you know, why are these why why were they so important to ISIS, right? And they were so important to ISIS because, and this is exactly what they said. They said ISIS wanted to have a caliphate. They wanted to have a state. You cannot have a state without women and children. And I thought that that was so, I kind of, so both profound and kind of basic, right? And then I thought about the Jebediah's folks in this in this movie here. It's like, how can you have a community that doesn't include women and children, right? And it, it, that's what kind of made it feel, I don't know, kind of weird, right? Like the whole... I don't know, the whole brotherhood or whatever. I don't know. It's like there was just something off about the whole thing. Probably their use of um, 660 BB guns just ruined it for you. And that might have been it, too. That might have been it, too. I don't know. Now, I mean, uh, like, I think the one thing that you and I and perhaps even anonymous Amazon user um, can agree on, it's that it, it's – it, it has a troubled past with its treatment of women in this film. And I like other than being taken as these like forced war brides or whatever that are repeatedly raped, like there is no semblance of a constructed uh, relationship with women in, in the brotherhood, in the town folk, you know, like the, there's not a lot of that. And I don't know if that's intentional because it's still like in the midst of this gigantic civil war, right? And so they don't have time to fully fleece some of that stuff out. But Jesus Christ, if ISIS can do it, then you know, yeah, maybe, maybe the Brotherhood could do. I don't know. Yeah, I mean it, that's the that, that that's the whole thing about they are they are incredibly kind of one dimensional and just like painted with this evil that 
I, I think I think pushes them so far away from uh, like reality and also so far away from like the bad parts of the Christian faith that it that it becomes like almost like uh, uh, something that's not connected back anymore. I, yeah. th- I I think that there could have been a much better discussion on just on the whole thing, right? I mean, it could there there's like a gajillion ways it could have gone better, but you know. There's always it. next time. There's always next time. There's always Stakelander. That's true. We'll check that out. Yeah. Uh, next week's episode is going to be all about Stakelander and how Mike likes A1 sauce. I got nothing. <laughs> uh, that's that's oh, as good as it got. I feel, I feel bad for that we were so hard on this movie. but Yeah. Uh, I will not be tagging their writers and directors in this episode. <laughs> So next week, uh, who from the cast of Stakeland are we going to have on the podcast, Tyler? <laughs> you get to talk to them. Yeah. All right. I know, much to the chagrin of everybody that got their way through this episode, uh, we will not be talking about uh, Stakelander 2 Electric Boogaloo. Uh, we will be covering, though, Kill List and Secret Societies. Until then, uh, do us a massive favor. We are all poor teachers here. So if you can give a dollar or two or five or ten, head on over to our Patreon page. We would love to have you donate and we'll be glad to throw some uh, Signal Horizon or Horror Pod Class swag your way. Uh, or you can check us out on Twitter at Signal Horizon or uh, Horror Pod Class. Or check us out on Facebook at Signal Horizon. Or probably the best place to catch most of our stuff is on our discussion group that we have on Facebook. Just look us up under the Horror Pod class. We have lots of great discussion uh, with all of our listeners. So, Mike, where can they find more of your stuff? I put a link to my stuff on Goodreads, and you can find me on Signal Horizon. And that Horror Pod class uh, Facebook group is, like, super cool. It's not like your typical Facebook group that, you know, just has you know political memes and you know pictures of people's cats. There are some people with pictures of people's cats, but they're my cats. So head on down, come see some pictures of my cats. Okay, until next time. Class dismissed. Class dismissed.